This is Death by DVD. I am your host. It's time now for Death by DVD. Episode 47 Poop Monsters from Outer Space. This is Death by DVD. I am your host, I Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host and a glob of weird goo from space. It's Hank. Accurate. It's a true portrayal. This week, I do have something that I want to talk to the audience about. You too. This is a great offer that everyone can can partake in. Uh, you know, and it entails giving me money, but you completely have to trust me. I've got an operation that I'm starting, and it's 100% self-sustaining. Lizard tail jerky. It's it's an age-old idea. It's been around forever, and you know nobody even gets hurt here because we feed the lizards their own tails until the lizards get big enough and grow a big enough tail that we can you know cut them off, make jer- jerky, and so the lizards you know they're they're eating themselves. Everything's okay. It's uh, it's like Mother Nature really came in and unified everything. Like uh, everything's holding hands and perfect. But you right now for an easy payment of thirty nine ninety nine. You can give me your money and help me get this off the ground because we've got to build more cages. We only got one lizard cage, and I need 92 because we've got some guys in Ontario that are incredibly interested in this. And so this is where it all comes from. You guys help me get this backing money because we've got to buy the lizards too. And Petco gets really pissed off when you buy like more than two lizards at a time because they think I've done something wrong to them. And you can't tell them you're letting the lizards eat their own tails. And you also have to be pretty particular because some lizards' tails don't grow back, and it's it can be a big mess. And we need researchers and all sorts of stuff. So... Uh, Death by DVD is going into a new venture here with Lizard Tail Jerky, the self-sustaining, self-sustaining treat. I think I said that right. But yeah, uh, at the end of the show, we'll have a commercial. You uh, can learn how to send me your money, check only or cash. Actually, you know what? The cash. Cash is, is much more preferable. Money order. Uh, yeah, cash. At the end of the show, we'll let you know how to get in on the ground operation of definitely not a pyramid scheme. My lizard tail, Hank, Uncle Hank, Anki Hank's lizard tail jerky. Thank you, Bert Remsen, for that lovely soliloquy. You like that? It was, it's a, I'm trying to pitch it. You know, I want people to get excited as, as much as I am. It's lizard. Have you ever had lizard tail jerky? I have seen a movie that has lizard tail jerky in it. It's a movie I think we're covering tonight. Could it be? I don't remember what we're covering, Hank. You're going to have to walk me through this one, baby. This week is all about slithery little turd monsters from out of space. And I promise this isn't a political episode. We're not talking about Donald Trump. But we are talking pretty much about slithery turd monsters from outer space. Uh, Initially, we were going to do a monster show. And that came from years of me just wanting to talk about Night Beast. I really want to talk about Night Beast. But it keeps getting vetoed, and we shuffled it around. I think we were going to do maybe Universal Monster-type things and and, uh, maybe Godzilla Monster-type things, Kaiju, when it finally came down to sloppy little creepy turd monsters. Are they all sloppy little turd creatures? One of them looks like a giant vomit with arms. And then there's the brain. One's a brain. 
when is a brain? Um, yeah, we're going to be doing monsters this week, and they're all just really fun, sometimes dumb monster movies. And I, I can't think of a movie that I'm aware that's on this list anyway that is in any way like not just fun. No, we're like you know, just like oh, it was an amazing movie. No, they're all just fun. They're all just like Saturday matinee um, or late night Cinemax type fodder. Just things you would uh, you pick up on like clicking through the channels at night. And this is where we're at. Nope. Monsters. One of these movies I hadn't even seen before, which I don't know. I don't know how I've missed this. It seems like something I definitely should have seen on USA Up All Night, where it ran pretty endlessly. But I don't know. I, things happen. We could just go ahead and start, I guess, with the brain, since we're already talking about the brain. Let's talk about the brain. Well, I'm a, was it 89? written by Barry Pearson and directed by Ed Hunt. Uh, a little Canadian monster movie <laughs> yeah. to start things off. That's, I had to ask you when I finished viewing it. Yeah, this is Canadian, right? Because the movie has Barry. a warning about a, a prank that we'll get to at the end of the film, and it's just something polite about the Canadians. They would definitely. Well, it's put not a even the, at the end of the film, as much as throughout the entire film, you should know where this is going because this is where I learned that sodium, the mineral, when it reacts to water, it can explode. And they demonstrate that at the beginning of the film. They give you a hint throughout most of the film because uh, there are little paper signs attached to everything. Sodium in use. Uh, keep from getting wet. Keep everything dry. Sodium in use around here. And ultimately, how do we stop the monster? Big jar of sodium. And well, it's it even better because there's a giant sign right before the, the triumphant ending of the movie that says sodium in use, don't get wet. So you, you already, you don't even get a red herring. It's just slapped in your face over and over and over again. This is what kills the monster. <laughs> like, I don't even know what, what are you using it for? It is literally in the boiler room of a TV station. What the fuck is sodium in use for in this movie at all? Yeah, there's a lot of things you end up questioning with the brain. This is the movie I'd never seen before, which it's just baffling. I don't know how I've missed it. And what's funny enough, we were talking about this before the show. Both of us, uh, I guess on our first viewings, did not notice the great and dearly departed David Gale of Reanimator fame. He was also in Dallas. He was in like 80 episodes of Dallas. It's a fact that most people don't bring up. That was like when I saw this, because I saw The Brain a long-ass time ago. I'm thinking it was like 1991. I probably saw it on Cinemax super late at night. And I just kept seeing David Gale, and I couldn't remember who he was. And I was just like, who is this guy? I've seen something before. And at a certain point in this film, David Gale gets his head knocked off, because that's what he does best. And then they just have a shot of his head like festering on the floor, and it's like, oh! Oh, it's Dr. Hill from Reanimator. I, I know that guy. Who he was. I recognize him more without a body than I do with a body. The the other lead character is what Tommy Breshnahan, and I can't pronounce the character's last name. It's one thing that I can't stand is when you get incredibly unnameable characters. His name was Jim, but Majewaleski, it's something Polish, and that's not fair. Yeah, he um he showed up in a bunch of movies in the the like the late 80s and early 90s. He was also in um, Twice Dead, a very little scene movie that you can watch on YouTube right now, horror movie, with Todd Bridges as well. And he was in Ski School? He was in one of those uh, titty skiing movies back in the day. But I was like, I, I kind of liked him as an actor. And then recently, uh, if you watch the uh, Brain Blu-ray, which I have from Shot Factory, uh, you find out he's a motivational speaker now. And 
probably kind of a dick because one of his best influences, his greatest friends, is Stefan Molyneux. So I'm assuming he's probably maybe a white nationalist. Now, I'm not positive, but it's a, poss- it's a possibility. Now, is Ski School the one with George Lopez, or is that Ski Patrol? No, that's Ski Patrol. Okay. Um, Ski School had Dean Cameron in it. There's a Ski School 1 and a Ski School 2, and Ski School 2 has Dean Cameron and um, what's-his-face, uh, Will. Will from uh, Mad TV. What is that guy's name? Will Sasso, that's yeah, his name. Yeah, the fat one. I know who you're talking about. Sorry, Will Sasso. There's better ways to describe you, but that's the one uh, I went with. <laughs> So, yeah, the brain is a new experience to me with something that was I wasn't really expecting it. But I guess looking at the other movies that will appear on this list, I definitely should have. But I went with this first uh, just because I hadn't seen it. And as usual, I I guess I have to re-remind the audience. I like to watch the movies every week before the show. So even if they're really shitty, I suffer as well as you if you choose to watch whatever we talk about. But this kind of hit me with, I mean, obvious Canadian vibes, but it was more fun than anything else. And you want to point out problems and you want to point out how dumb certain aspects of the movie are. But it's just kind of a jolly ride. I think out of all the movies that we're going to talk about, this is probably the most innocent. Uh, And it's definitely not. I mean, it's got some extreme scenes of violence, I guess you could say. And uh, was it, did Beekler do the brain? Who did the brain? Mm, no. I don't think so. I think it was Canadian uh, yeah, special I'm effects sorry. artist. Beekler did another movie we're talking about. My brain's all willy nilly because I'm hopped up on goofballs. Um, but like, I, innocent is probably a good word for it because it is kind of a 1950s like teen run amok monster movie, sort of like The Blob or something like that. But it's handled incredibly well for such cheap budget in the uh, late 80s when people weren't really making kind of like monster movies anymore. They were more focused on slashers and other kinds of horror films. But uh, this one always like sparked off on me because it's got like not the most original premise, but it's an interesting premise of like a television psychiatrist brainwashing people because a evil brain that has a face on it uh who possibly, possibly from has come space? from space i think i'm i'm not real sure cuz they, they don't really nail that one down and uh just you know to brainwash him kind of a body snatchers type situation and no one believes this kid and the law is after him and all this other stuff but the amount of energy that's in this movie is probably what is what's most impressive no one is doing this for laughs um, no one's like winking. I mean, there are plenty of laughs in the movie, but like no one's on purpose trying to make just a, a, like a schlocky horror film. They like everybody's earnest in their performances. Everybody's taking this situation seriously. And it really shows on film and makes it kind of the ride that it is. Because like when I watch a movie, what one of the problems so much with the 90s and early 2000s with horror films is everything got so goddamn self-referential. And every once in a while, that can be okay. But after a while, it just got to a point of just like, could somebody take this seriously? Because that's what makes horror movies great is when everybody involved is taking it seriously. It's not just like sarcastic bullshit all the time. And this doesn't really have sarcastic bullshit. It's incredibly earnest in what direction they're going in. And it does have some scenes of violence. Uh, the, The brain special effects are kind of great until it gets to its largest size. That's when it looks like dopey to me. It doesn't look cool anymore. Um but overall, I think it's just it's a hell of a ride and just something that's a miss from more modern movies. I, I think a lot of people probably haven't seen this. And if they haven't, you need to like, you know, pick up that Shout Factory Blu-ray. It's like Blu-ray is a little thin. It's got some stuff on it. It's got some commentaries and some stuff on it. But overall, I mean, it, it's worth the, the purchase price. 
I think it's got kind of a Twin Peaksy, not the the rapey mystical Black Lodge aspect, but the high school aspect, especially at the beginning of the film, like when Jin Jim gets to school, it's got this kind of Twin Peaksy camaraderie that everyone knows him, and he's a troublemaker, and he gets in trouble uh, right off the bat. So you, you you know allowed to know well, he's got some cheeky shenanigans, and we're allowed to laugh. So you but what get... is his cheeky shenanigans? Putting a tablet of sodium in the toilet so they explode. So we're setting up our ending right there, right first five minutes. Well, I think with this movie and everything else we've picked tonight, what all have what they all have in common is you are established right at the beginning of the movie. It's okay to laugh. Some of this is going to be horrifying, and it's like that Bava aspect where he would give nods to you, like uh, in Bay of Blood, where there's a horrific kill and it is this big close-up on the dune buggy and it looks like its front grill is smiling just a wink it's okay to laugh it's it's all a movie everything's all right and you get that established with this prank at the beginning of this film that okay you know there's some fun to be had here and then it instantly goes into he's going to be expelled from school and can't graduate because of this prank unless he goes and sees this tv psychiatrist played by uh david gale and his principal's kind of forcing this on him and his parents give and he has to go do it and that's where we accelerate into the really freaky deaky aspects of it and it really does have you know there's no other way this movie was made outside of an audience for late night tv drive-in sort of thing it wouldn't play it wouldn't feel anywhere else so it really does have that off-kilter strange vibe but i still stand by the kind of weird twin peaksy high school overacting oh yeah vibe well, i mean because well you're talking about canada and then you're talking about canada in the 1980s so nothing is particularly hard at edged or anything it's a lot of dudes in like jean jackets and turtlenecks and you can see like it's pretty snowy at times on the ground so it's obviously very cold i don't know how like, i mean you eventually picked up on it but immediately to me this just screamed fucking canadian like i uh, just absolutely i think one of the things that gives it away is there's a joke at the beginning of the movie where uh, jim says to the principal i'm innocent until proven guilty and then a teacher that was in the bathroom comes out with the empty box of sodium that his dummy ass jumped or dumped into the, the trash can which uh, that should establish too that this guy's not that smart you pull a prank and you leave the evidence behind dummy ass uh, and then right after that i forgot my point god damn it i hate when this happens <laughs> I, I was so focused on calling him a dummy ass because it makes me giggle that I completely forgot the, the whole point. Well, I mean, the, I think the point of the thing, because he's kind of, um, he has a strong uh, James Marshall from Twin Peaks vibe. Not so much that rebel, because like James Marshall from like um, Twin Peaks is supposed to be like a biker rebel, but he's very white bread. He is so just kind of plain Jane, like, yeah, I am a rebel because I have the black leather jacket, but that's about the extent of it. He's really a good guy deep down. That's who this character kind of is for the most part, except instead of a black leather jacket, he's wearing a goddamn white sweater. On the subject of James Marshall, I think one of the worst problems with him is that deep down inside, he's a wuss. He's not some cool tough yes. guy. He's a, an emotional poet sitting in his room crying at night. Why won't Laura like me? I don't know what to do. He's kind of a wussy. Bobby fucking killed a guy, man. I mean, there's a big difference between... I think the stability of, of these characters and this guy, Jim, isn't completely a wuss because when things, you know, he eventually he's getting framed for these murders that the brain is committing via the TV. And the doctor is, you know, uh, freaking people out on television and they're 
being hypnotized pretty much into believing that Jim's the killer to the extent that his girlfriend eventually, who's been helping him the entire time, saving the day, watches the television for a little bit and she also gets hypnotized and everyone turns against him. But he fights it. He doesn't even want to leave her until a police officer shoots at him. So he's still, he, he's not a, a complete wuss, I'd say. I just think the general uh, introduction to the character kind of establishes, like, he's not that bright. And so our, our leading hero, you have a hard time getting behind somebody like this because he doesn't have a personality. He's just kind of, you know. Well, he's guy. Canadian. Yeah, yeah. Poor Canadians. They don't get a personality legally till they're 21. Oh, Canada. Um, but, like, as far as the special effects go, the brain effects are really good. Did you notice when um, the principal, the principal's wife comes out because she's hypnotized by the television, well, comes the out to uh, kill him and blame it on Jim. And when she's cutting him in half while he's building this deck with this chainsaw, uh, there's one shot where she's cutting him in half, and you can see his little stick legs that are just bouncing up and down. And, like That was the first time I've really, like as I remember as a child, Seeing an effect like that and going, oh wow, that that looks, ooh, that's funny as fuck looking. It does not look good at all, particularly. It's one of those things where you realize how the scene was shot, and it's it's laughable, but I think it also helps accelerate how enjoyable the movie is because it's not it's dead serious. It's a very horrific scene, and then they have to run away from what's happening, and you're still supposed to believe what's going on but it goes into the next gear into that warehouse sequence with the giant brain so quickly you're not really left to ponder about how shitty those legs were and they're still in khakis that's my favorite part is there these tiny little stick legs with the loafers and khakis on he's just out like chopping wooden loafers it's great very canadian um but yeah like the movie overall is the perfect kind of as I saw it anyway, it's a kind of a perfect slumber party type movie. It's a, a, like when they are doing something like the last drive in marathons and stuff like that. And it's that kind of film. It's a film that everyone is going to watch. They're going to bag on it, but everybody's going to, at the end of the day, enjoy it. No one's going to say that fucking sucked because I mean, it, it, style it pays movie. off. Everything pays off the movie and it like, it all feels pretty good. You don't feel like you've been gypped. You were promised a movie about a giant killer brain, and you get a movie about a giant killer brain. And it's not too cheap. It's not too cheesy. It's just right in that nice medium rare area where it's just like, all right, yeah, okay, that was a, that was a good waste of like four bucks. I think, unfortunately, no matter what Joe Bob does, there will be somebody to complain. Recently, the biggest complaints I've seen is, I wish you hadn't shown a foreign film second because I was too drunk by then. Well, that sounds like a fucking personal problem, doesn't it? <laughs> Why does that concern Joe Bob Briggs or Shutter Network? Don't drink so much during the first movie. Save it for the second one, fella. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, it, I don't know. It's just you're going to have to occasionally sit through something you're not particularly comfortable with when you get into horror films. Because I'm not all about, like, especially getting into The Last Drive-In. Last season on The Last Drive-In, like, uh, was it Wolf Guy, that Sonny Chiba, um, like, werewolf movie? I wasn't into that at all. Like, this is like a downer to be putting this in. Or um, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. It's like, wow, this is your second choice for a movie? This is... It's like 1130, dude. What the fuck are you showing this very slowly paced thing in? But again, I mean, some people would never be exposed to certain movies like that if they weren't forced to some other way like this to actually sit down and watch something that could be amazing. 
Well, the two things you just referenced right there, I had heard of, I'd, I'd read synopsises for, and I'd had no interest in seeing, and had avoided doing it. And particularly, I didn't enjoy 100% Wolf Cop. I didn't love A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, but I'm glad to have seen them. I'm glad to have learned what I did about them. I mean, I in general... And this is something you and I have been discussing a lot. You're really into the critic aspect of things, and that's something you're very passionate about is reviewing and critiquing film. But I've gotten and grown more and more interested into film history, and it could possibly be something combined that makes this show interesting because I've always wondered why people listen. Tell us sometime. Tweet us. Let us know why you listen to Death by DVD. But uh, it's it's just an interesting concept of learning. And so when you sit down with something like Joe Bob, like this week, I have heard of One Cut of the Dead. I've not wanted to watch it, not because it's a foreign film. I've just seen a lot of zombie movies. And the only synopsis you can find for this movie is a, a director shooting a zombie film and zombies attack and he doesn't stop shooting. I've seen a lot of zombie films, so I wasn't 100% interested it in it. It sounds like Diary of the Dead. Yeah, it didn't sound interesting to me, and I've avoided watching it, and I am very thankful that Joe Bob played it. I thought it was terrific and a pretty enlightening movie with one one hell of a twist. It's just a great movie to watch, and I definitely wouldn't have seen it. So sometimes you get some turds, and sometimes you get some apples, and you just have to pick out in between them. But the interesting part about it is you, with especially Joe Bob Briggs, you get the historian and film history aspect and the critique on the same time. And when those things are combined, I think it allows you as the audience member to, yeah, learn something, but maybe even realize and learn how to formulate your own opinion and learn how to sit through some of this stuff you otherwise would have thought was really shitty because you're looking at it from a different standpoint. Like when we recently did Joe D'Amato on the Video Nasty show, I'm not particularly a huge fan of the guy, but I love the reasons why he made his movies, why he worked so hard. I love the artist behind it. <laughs> well, yeah, money's a big thing, but he, he loved film. He loved working in film. He didn't want to work in a factory. He didn't want to do anything else. And every day of his life that he got up and he got to smoke cigarettes and shoot movies was a blessed day for him. And there's something beautiful about that to me. And it doesn't matter what the genre is. Like, Fred Olin Ray right now works mostly for, like, the Lifetime channel and is making Lifetime movies and, like, Oprah Network movies. But Fred Olin Ray loves film. He loves directing and making movies, and he's passionate doing it. And I don't know, maybe the whole point of this is find what you love and do it. Positivity. We're positive guys on here. Every so, now and again. Uh, we got uh, things to say about the brain. I mean, it's... We gave you the entire plot synopsis. We told you some fun stuff in it. There's really not much to talk about because it is that kind of movie. It is pretty much a run-through. You know kind of how it's going to end when it begins, but you don't not enjoy it because of that. that's why you do enjoy it. I think it's definitely a monster movie, probably the most monster movie of this list because it has all those 50s aspects of it. It's got the creeping brain. It's got overacting, and, and you referenced earlier, it certainly has a 1950s kind of feel to it. So it's just enjoyable on all fronts, and it's it's a movie you can sit and watch with pretty much everyone. Your, your mom can enjoy this. Maybe your grandparents, depending on how much sticklers they are. Kids to an extent, you know, maybe 10 and up, I'd say. Except for maybe the tits. Oh, yeah, there are some tits, but you're going to see those. It's going to happen. They exist. All right. I enjoy that one very much. What's next on the list? I was happy to have discovered this movie, thanks to you. So next on the list, uh, I don't know. I, I like to save my favorites for last, but I don't think that's fair. So let's go with something that I really, really, really love. I think you really love this movie, too. 1986, Terror Vision. 
Uh, Terror Vision is an absolute classic. It's another film that I didn't rent. I didn't um, like track this down on my own. There was, uh, in my area anyway, there was a Friday night show called The Creature Feature, hosted by Misty Brew, uh, who's still kicking on YouTube. Misty Brew's still looking good in her 60s, too, for God's sakes. She's basically an Elvira clone, um, but she would show a lot of Hammer movies, um, but she also would show... Um, a lot of weird random stuff reanimator one night, but one night was terror vision and I watched it and I just couldn't put my finger on terror vision. I've never been able to truthfully kind of understand terror vision. Like the vibe they're going for is just so left of field. I mean, you could call it kind of a Paul Bartel vibe, um, something along those lines where it's like tongue firmly in cheek, but everybody is like acting completely hype, completely over the top. All the characters are over the top. All the situations are, are completely over the top. But every single second of it is a goddamn dream. It's just such a fun fucking movie. And if you can't have fun with Terror Vision, I don't know what your problem is. Yeah, it's an Empire movie. Charles Band's involved. It's got some rough edges. But fuck, those rough edges are great. That's another thing that makes the movie what it is. I mean, for God's sakes, the entire thing was shot in a film studio in Italy. And this is what you get. Amazing. Written and directed by Ted Niccolo, pointing out the Charles Band Company. Yes, the same legendary man that did Bloodlust and Bloodstone, the subspecies movies. He did the original subspecies also. He did uh, he Savage also, uh, Island, Dungeon Master. He also worked with uh, Toby Hooper. He worked on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I believe he was part of the sound department for the Texas yes, Chainsaw Massacre. Yes, he was, Massacre. and he was on uh, Tourist Trap. I don't remember what he did on Tourist Trap, though. All these guys have you know worked together, especially the Charles Band crew. At some point, they all reappear and show up together. But one of the things I really love about this movie is some of the weird attention to detail that the, the family... Star of the family has, uh, we forgot to bring up the greatest person in the world. The family is led by Garrett Graham, and the movie's introduced and begins with uh, some wacky alien action, but then we go into Garrett Graham, and one of his greatest performances next to Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, leisure suit up the ass, and uh, you find out they're swingers, and this goes into one of my, I guess, favorite factoids. Which seems to be a major plot point of the movie, is that they're swingers. It gets brought up constantly, that they're, like the swinging lifestyle that they lead. I mean, you really think there's going to be like more greasy, dirty sex because of all that. But what I really love... It's pretty I'm, wholesome, though. Yeah, it's not as filthy as you really would think it is. Maybe some uh, inappropriate or frowned-upon gay jokes now, but I don't know. That's pretty funny at the same time. Ted went around and actually, with the production staff, went uh, around L.A. and like viewed swingers' apartments. They would answer ads and find swingers and just ask, can we check out your apartments? Can we look at your houses? And that's where the set design came from. And this is really, like, the, my favorite thing, I think, about watching this movie is every time you watch it, you see something really more weird than you thought you saw the last time in the set design. That They have a young child and a daughter, and there's just weird pop art portraits of fucking all over this place, just odd, erotic art. What's and weird it's, about it's that is paint. I saw it on television. I don't know how they, like, because they didn't, like, blur things out back when I saw it. They, like, didn't go back on film. So a lot of this, like, nude artwork was just playing on basic cable in, like, the 80s. Well, it's probably the dirtiest part of the movie is some of the background artwork in a... Uh... Where do we go from here? You've got the swinging family, and he's attempting to set up a do-it-yourself 
satellite dish. That's the whole catch to the entire movie, that the guy that's installing it with him can't help him. He's guzzling all of Garrett Graham's heinies, so he finally loses his temper, Garrett Graham, beats the hell out of the satellite dish, and it somehow intercepts waves from outer space, which allows a big gelatinous monster, which we'll later find out is also a nice house pet before it evolves, I think. It transports yes. to the TV, which it can now come out of. So uh, just disbelieve everything you know about television and, and electri electricity and come into terror vision territory. What's well, so kind of crazy is like at the time this was made, they're getting this satellite dish installed and all of a sudden they're going to have like a hundred channels. Ooh, a hundred television channels and some of it's porn and some of it's monster movies. Some of it's all these different things. And like, the remote control on it has a fucking satellite dish in itself that spins around. It's a very, like, hyper-reality-based thing. This is in no way any sort of, like, real-life scenario that's going on. And the performances indicate that. It also has Mary Warnov in it, which is very important because classic exploitation actress in lots of films over the years. And she does a really good job in this. It's almost like she is playing off of her uh, longtime partner, Paul Bartel, kind of giving the same performances as she gave in something like Eating Raul or something along those lines. Um, but she's an integral part to this whole setup. They have a daughter who... Um, is Diane oh, Franklin? What is that actress's name? She was in Better Off Dead. Diane Franklin. Diane Franklin, that's correct. Um, who's super punk rock, but kind of in a Cindy Lauber sort of way with big high colored hair. She's more like a Belinda a, Carlisle. Yeah, and and um, her boyfriend is Jonathan Grise, uh, who is doing one of his best performances. I love him as OD in this movie. I like him better than this than I did in Napoleon Dynamite and Real Genius, anything else. He's just being incredibly dopey this entire movie. <laughs> hey, this guy's in the battle. Um, yeah, it's... I don't know how to explain this movie of just like how heartwarming it is to me. Uh, this is the kind of shit I was weaned on and it's just kind of Definitely. amazing that they don't make movies this like fun anymore. And this kind of ludicrous and dopey that you can still pull it off. People still try to attempt to make these kind of movies, but they're just, they never succeed this way. And I think it just has a lot to do with, kind of the innocence of the time and the innocence of humor. I mean, there's a fair amount of like kind of fart joke style humor in it, but it's the actors that pull it off and make it funny. Like Garrett Graham though. Fuck. He's so good in this movie. Uh, he's one of the characters that when he perishes, you really just kind of get disappointed. But you know, recently I saw a film from, I think 2017. I can't remember the name of the director, but it was called patchwork. It, it kind of is one of the most relative things to what you were just talking about, a movie that's made somewhat similar to, similarly to this that has a lot of fun with itself and is somewhat heartwarming but is also a bit vicious. And it's a, a very Stuart Gordon-inspired movie. I believe he's actually in the, the credits as a special thanks about a woman that gets three other or two other women inside of her. So one body... It's a hard story. I believe you can find it on Shudder. It's something that, the reason I bring it up, has a pleasant enjoyability to it and despite being somewhat bizarre in its nature at the end of the day when the when the story ends it was heartwarming and that's something that you can greatly appreciate with terrorvision and uh you just have such a crazy array of characters not just Garrett Graham you've got the grandfather who begins the movie with his lizard tail jerky company he's got a big sign for it and the character itself is just kind of wild like he's some sort of ex-military anti-war war obsessed 
maybe a hippie-ish character, but still. Well, a lot just... of that is the, uh, the time period, though, because you're talking about the Reagan era, and this is like the, the Rambo-ocation of America at this point, where all the right-wingers were... Well, I mean, what really has changed? They all think they're soldiers. They all think the apocalypse. They there's a bunker in the house for Christ's sakes where the the kid Sherman sleeps, and that's like guns are what make life worth living type of scenario with these people. And it's kind of a comment on the '80s. A lot of it is comment on kind of the um, plastification of American values in the 1980s. How everybody kind of sold everything out um, for cocaine leg warmers and just mass Swinging. market products and that's really what is at the heart of this movie of like what's going on in america yeah i got a new satellite dish and i'm swinging and that's all i care about but i believe the grandfather character was somewhat based on a kind of local celebrity a street celebrity in san francisco in the 70s it was a really big anti-war but yet military guy i didn't put a lot of research into that but Google it. You can find it out. Maybe it's on the IMDb. Who are we outside of people that should know these facts and trivia? But it's all a, a really deep, interesting level of characters. Like the son they constantly refer to has some sort of fits or problems, and he's heavily medicated. So when the monster starts attacking and coming out of the TV, he calls the local horror host a, a very buxom Elvira knockoff Medusa, who just thinks he's absolutely crazy. When he's trying to tell his sister about things, she just, oh, you got to take your medication. What the hell's going on with you Sherman and then another one of the greatest lines of dialogue delivered by OD oh he's a pill popper sweet that it's just it's goofball but there's so much more going on and it, again you know what you had just mentioned with uh, the Reagan era and pretty much people being corporate soulless sellouts it's also when people heavily started putting their children on drugs like Ritalin literally microdosing methamphetamine so a lot of the nods towards Sherman's behavior there's nothing wrong with the kid the parents just don't care so he's essentially hopped up on Ritalin it's all very tongue-in-cheek political to an extent that you very easily will miss it unless it's and not I don't want to you know say you're stupid and you have to have it pointed out to you but it's something you got to watch once or twice to realize uh, it's like a Pixar movie you see something when you're really young you don't realize all the thinly veiled adult humor that's lying within it for the grown-ups to enjoy well I mean especially in that era that's when this movie is really asking the question once you have everything what else is there to try to obtain? And that's what terror vision is kind of about. Um, because that's what the eighties were about is obtaining all this garbage and it's never enough. Well, maybe we'll swing now and maybe that'll change some things. Well, let's give the kid a gun and maybe that we'll send him off to military school. So, just so I don't have to deal with it. Put him on some Ritalin. Oh, my daughter is uh, turning metal or whatever. I, I wish she would just, you know, put on the, uh, the, the skirt and just go to college and marry a nice fucking lawyer and all it's it's very much it's stoked in 80s style propaganda mary warnov even says at one point that punk stuff is just a phase yeah and really was it a phase because most of those people never got out of it fuck it i never got out of it hey oh let's go um it's but just yeah a lot are. of the jokes are off color jokes um it does have some um, kind of, I wouldn't call it, it's a little gay panic humor. I wouldn't call it specifically homophobic. Oh, but you it does have some man? Of that, yeah, where um, they're going to swing and Garrett Graham is trying to get with the 
lady of the couple, but that's not why the other couple agreed to swing with them because they wanted to pair up in a bisexual style. I love the character <clears throat> swinging Spiro. type situation. Spiro is a great character, though, and when he's introduced and he, he goes and he makes a drink and he begins discussing things with Mary Warnov, he mixes, like, rum, vodka, like, nine different things together. And and just the over-the-top nature of the character. He's got this crazy Greek accent, and that's the whole discussion. Is, is Stanley a manly man? Is, is, do you know what I mean? I, I'm into the Greeks. I like Boys, and it's just this crazy laughing fit. And yeah, it's definitely inappropriate, I, I guess, in our time because you can't enjoy things and laugh unless you're a xenophobic, racist, white cis male. I, I don't fucking know, and it doesn't really matter. The the point is, is you get this awesome like ball of oh, here's this really weird, bizarre monster effect, and everything is gooey, but there's a, a weird sexual tension to it, and especially with all the erotic art in the background and then this little psychotic kids running around and camouflage shooting at things just it's anarchy the entire movie is enjoyable uh, organized anarchy if that makes sense well like the movie takes a shift about i don't know like three-fourths of the way through where all of a sudden now like they can control the monster and the monster becomes their friend until the monster doesn't become their friend anymore and starts attacking them again and at the end i kind of felt bad um, especially when I was a kid, by about all the people the monster inevitably ends up killing because it's just like, oh, this Their is so family. fun. And then at the end, a lot of people died. Oh, this is well, let's look at that so fun with your whole thing talking about capitalism and a lot of the transition and nods in this movie. What is the one thing the monster has to do the entire time? Consume I mean, it, and watch television. So it really is a large gesture toward capitalism in general that the only thing this thing can do is absolutely consume and watch television. And you get the fun wink at the end of the movie, the old M. Night Shyamalan it's now inside of Medusa, and I guess it can body shift a lot better than it did the entire movie, but none of that matters. We don't need to make sense here. The point of Terror Vision is it, it doesn't, it's undefinable by time. It was great when it came out, it was great 10 years ago, it was great 20 years ago, and it's still fucking great now, and it will remain that way for years simply because of the performances, because of people like Mary Warnov, because of it's Diane timeless. Franklin. Even yeah. if it's so much a comment on the 80s, it's still a very timeless movie and very much be able to enjoy now. And it definitely is, and uh, just, I guess, keeping with our theme, it, it's from outer space. The be movie begins with it coming from outer space. We don't know about the brain, if if that's where it comes from. But And it does have a, like, kicking opening theme song. I can't remember who does it, uh, but it's... Television. Yeah, it's one of the distinguishing things that I think the most enjoyable part, and it's like Joe Bob now. The last drive-in starts, I'm singing the theme song. I know the lyrics. I know the lyrics of the Terrorvision theme song. Uh, every movie, I think, on this list tonight, uh, Sands the Brain, has a specific song in it at some point that I, I can't help myself but sing. But if I had to review this professionally and give it a rating, four stars for cult points. Joe Bob says, wait, sorry, wrong show. Um, Hank says, check it out. It's fucking worth it i mean it's terror vision yeah i mean it is inappropriate but at all the same time incredibly like hmm incredibly harmless all at the same time i mean some people can find some maybe some inappropriate humor they're not comfortable with but at the same time you know it's all coming from like a non-hateful place it's not about hate it's just about this bully base of a movie we've put together and you're going to enjoy 
at least one aspect of it before it's over. You're going to laugh at something. You're going to have your heart warmed a little bit at some point. Um, but overall, it's just it's a melding of like 1980s special effects, humor, and just for with all fucking attitude of getting something done and making just kind of a movie and just putting it out there and seeing what happens. Yeah, it's kind of beautiful. And again, too, like the brain in pretty much every movie on this list, it definitely is an homage to the classics of the 1950s and 60s and the early drive-in films of hands and my eyes and monsters and aliens coming from outer space, which is, uh, you know, you have Star Trek and Star Wars and all these things that take place in outer space now, but nobody really focuses on alien invasions anymore. I mean, the last really massive big one we had was the Independence Day movies. You've got things like Cloverfield, but it's a, a neglected subgenre. In the 80s, I think, with uh, the next film, uh, is definitely not an 80s movie. It's one I didn't want to mention because it was going to be next. There's a very cool... I don't know, lost aspect of horrible things from outer space happening because you just get so used to it. You know, Baby Yoda, The Mandalorian, all these... You don't think well, about space. Most of the movies now are trying to take after Alien of something horrible coming from outer space. They want to take it dead serious. And I don't think you always have to take it so serious. You can have some fun with the concept and make it like a wild ride, like a fucking Pee Wee uh, Herman movie or something like that. That's what it feels like. It's it's oh, that same level of humor and just joy and like warms your goddamn fucking heart, you know? So do you mean almost like the 2006 movie Slither, directed and written by James Gunn, a man that might possibly have sex with little children because he had a picture taken uh, at a party as a Catholic priest, and we have to damn everyone because of silly, ignorant things? Possibly. Uh, <laughs> well, that's all. Fuck it. I mean, what I that was one hell of a Lloyd Kaufman mouth about that shit. whole controversy to begin with is people were like trying to cancel James Gunn. Overall, like a bunch of bad pedophile jokes he made and stuff like that over the years on his Twitter account. Did you did you not go back to his trauma days? Because like he's been inappropriate since the beginning. Like I don't know how Marvel hired him to begin with. I know it's because he's like got an amazing amount of talent and shit. But like they vetted him. They knew he made Romeo and Juliet. They knew he made the specials. That's the thing. So, exactly. Like, I, that's even the point of my joke, and you know Lloyd Kaufman made a stab at it, made a joke about it on Joe Bob also, but he was vetted, he was checked out. Now, yeah, I know what you're saying. Well, what about Harvey Weinstein? What about all these other pedophiles and the people that harmed Corey Haim and Corey Feldman? They're still working, they're still doing things. Yes, and a big, exasperated sigh, yes, they are, but... You're looking at something like if George Carlin was alive and told the seven words you can't say on TV or that joke about snapping pussy, you know, there's different types of pussy. You couldn't fucking get away with that anymore. And so you would be nailing George Carlin to the cross for something uh, as lewd as deviant behavior. You know, just some fucking dumb shit is, is the principle and point behind here. Was the joke inappropriate? Does it matter? No, it absolutely does not. If it's a lost form of humor, if it's an old dated joke, it doesn't matter. The entire point here is that these people took this photo with no knowledge of anything. Uh, this guy's a pedophile. Why? Simply because he's left wing. And I don't want to put a political affiliation on James Gunn, but he most certainly isn't somebody standing up and rooting for guys like Donald Trump and before that John McCain and whomever other conservative pundit had came forward. And he is known to be in a circle of people that are more left wing. And that's simply the principles that he was attacked by. 
That's why he was, was railroaded and why this incident happened. Because he believed in something that other people didn't. The same people that walk around and bitch about freedom of speech and you can't take my amendments away and make me stay at home are the same guys that sat and bitched about James Gunn. Fuck you guys. Just, just fuck your mother. Eat shit. Shit in a hat. All sorts of awful things should happen to you people. Uh, what's really funny is um, the person who quote-unquote exposed James Gunn was a little bit of a fucking asshole named Mike Cernovich, who is a hardcore right-wing psychopath. Who He's friends with Alex Jones. And uh, if you go through his Twitter account, which people did after the James Gunn thing, he has lots of lots of weird things to say about rape, such as you can't rape willing women. And just like, and they're not jokes. He he wasn't joking. He believes that rape is like, like people don't get really raped that much. It's a whole bunch of women who have regrets after they have sex with men. Eh, he's got a book out about gorilla man spirit. And he's just the biggest piece of shit you will ever meet in your life. And they had to pull up these tweets James Gunn made about the party, about his costume, which uh, the costume was him dressed as a priest with some children, you know, uh, scantily clad girls dressed as children. And he made some uh, lewd humor tweets, because I don't want to say they were wrong or right. It's not my place to do or anybody's place. They were jokes made under a certain pretense. They were incredibly inappropriate jokes, and that was what James Gunn's shtick was, and it was for the longest time. But now that he's in the public eye a lot more, he cannot make those sorts of jokes anymore because he will get called out on it. It's like, this is a dated argument here, but the whole Gilbert Godfrey thing, he was the voice in the public face of Affleck and did the whole duck thing, and he made a very rotten joke about uh, the typhoon that had happened at the time, and a lot of tsunami, I'm sorry, it wasn't a typhoon, it was a tsunami. And uh, he made a joke about getting a new girlfriend floating down the river, and he got absolutely fired for it. But this is the same Gilbert Godfrey that has been making these jokes for 40-plus years. I mean, it would be like hiring Richard Pryor and getting mad at him for saying motherfucker. There's just sayings that are part of people's bits and established, but then you have, like, Kramer from Seinfeld. What he did is not in the same vein or in the same line as any of these guys. What Michael Richards did was racist. <laughs> Pretty much just, just racist. But Slither. On, that has little or nothing to do with racism. While. Let's get into Slither, which I saw in the theater when it came out. Nobody was in the theater. This movie fucking tanked. I don't know why it tanked other than people aren't interested in watching like rated R monster movies. And I was pleasantly surprised that James Gunn put together a very interesting monster movie that has like homages, homages, not Quentin Tarantino, like full on rips from movies, homages to past war things, homages to things like society, to Night of the Creeps two um, zombie films of the era. The um, thing. At the beginning of the movie, you got R.J. McCready guns or something, and it's one of the lead characters is, is R.J. McCready. So there's a lot of fun nods, and it is very Mayor similar. McCready. And it's very similar to, like, Night of the Creeps itself. Is The movie is an homage to not only period pieces from the 50s and 60s, but horror in general, and I think Slither is a perfect modern love letter penned by James Gunn to the horror genre, and he managed to make it explicit enough that it certainly is an exploitation movie. It has it has pretty much everything. It's got a, a greasy sex angle. It's got horrible monsters. It's got love. It's got comedy. It's got some country music if you're into that, too. It's got Michael Rooker. Who doesn't love Michael Rooker? Anybody that doesn't love Michael Rooker needs to get out of this country right now. And if you're one of our foreign listeners, get out of your... Never mind. This is a bad joke. I don't get it. <laughs> 
like one of the funniest things that I've heard James Gunn say when the, like the night he met Michael Rooker, um, that him and like Rooker's wife were out to dinner and all this stuff. And as James was paying, he was looking out the window as Rooker was standing on the sidewalk. And uh, Michael Rooker broke his glasses because he was just on the sidewalk in front of a restaurant doing random karate moves just for the shit of it. So Michael Rooker is kind of batshit crazy, and that's what's awesome about him. Or he's um, just an absolute lethal weapon that keeps himself trained at every waking moment. I mean, you have some lasagna, you do some karate, it burns carbs, it's good for you, it gets the heart pumping. You know, he might know something we don't know. And really, like this movie, again, it's it's an homage to previous monster movies, but for the most part, it's a lot like Terror Vision, where almost nothing is taken serious, but at the same time, you can take some of the horror aspects seriously. Um, it's a it's a weird balancing act he's doing this entire thing, and but he pulled it off wholeheartedly. I think Nathan Fillion as uh, the sheriff, I cannot remember any character names, but that's not important. Uh, he does an Bill. incredible job in the film, being able to deliver James Gunn's uh, like wry dialogue, never selling it. It was such a dry sense of humor the entire movie. Um, pro- for, uh, something I quote to this day from is in this movie. It's the uh, two little zombified girls where they. Um, the people are saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with this after they're taken over by the alien slugs. And they go, oh, it's just bad case of poison ivy. And the girls say, we're itchy. I don't know why it makes me laugh so much. This is the one thing in this movie that makes me last time, laugh time and time again. Poison ivy out back, maybe? We're itchy. No, they're not my parents. Bringing up somebody that's recently departed, Nathan Fillion has a Fred Willard like reaction to delivering his jokes. Everything has this very precise after-the-matter thing, and you have to think about it a second and realize the level of sarcasm that's been applied to it. And that's almost with every performance he's had. He's got this just magic way of really getting the line brought to you, but it's it's not in your face. I wish he would get more work where he's able to be humorous and just get off fucking television shows because he can't, he could have been like a bigger star than he is now. If he like, he is yet to really be in a Marvel movie and he would be perfect for a Marvel film. I know he's done like he's in both gardens of the galaxy movies sort of and shit like that. But Fillion is like a nice arrow to have in your quiver. And I just wish he would stop being in shit like castle. Not that these shows are bad, but it's just like, it's kind of generic TV work and he needs to like make the jump over to feature filmmaking and like really become kind of the big star that he could be. Um, just the way he can deliver uh, humor with such kind of a straight face and still make it humorous. Now, that's some fucked up shit. I, I would be excited to see him do something a bit more serious. Like Kevin James, apparently, is going to be playing a neo-Nazi hunting a woman down in a new movie. I don't oh know what God. it's about. I've not really read the synopsis. But what caught me is Kevin James to play neo-Nazi. You got me. I'm going to see it. I have to see it now. This is going to be absolutely amazing. And Nathan Fillion somebody that you could throw into a bizarre-ass role like that. Get this guy to play fucking Ted Bundy. He doesn't look exactly like him, but the amount of humor he could rely on an awful, despicable character like that would just be astounding. His range and his depth as an actor is much more deserving than TV. But as you just said, it's not like there's anything wrong with that. It's, you know, I'm a massive It's money. I mean, he's, he's like, well off. He can, like... It's not like he's hurting. 
but at the same time, I just would wish he could like get some more work because of because he's multifaceted and talented, and they just keep sticking him in like cop shows and shit. Like fuck that, put him in some more like weird shit like this. Um, and like the the general plot is fucking space slug turns Michael Rooker into a giant society style beast creature yeah michael rooker is married to starla played by the lovely elizabeth banks and she's not putting out he wants to go get laid he finds some trailer trash and they go to fuck in the woods alien came from space it attacks him and yeah pretty much it's a mixture of the thing the creature from the thing uh, society it turns it one of my favorite lines of dialogue is when you've got the, the i can't remember just gonna call her white trash girl when you've got white trash girl and the unveiling of her in the barn i'm just so goddamn fucking hungry could you pass me that possum over there it's just bizarre but it's like terror vision as you had said it's just beautifully bizarre what james gunn is brilliant at and he's like pieces of this show through some of his like more recent marvel style work but like when they go to her house, the the white trash, aforementioned white trash girl, and her baby is there playing with a tomato. Why is the tomato there? Oh, it, like it, it fucking uh, softens them up a bit. It's just that is just a weird little piece you add to a script or to a film, and it's what makes filmmaking interesting. When you can get away with things like that, or just odd things that the audience isn't going to immediately recognize. I mean. We have gotten to a point in filmmaking history where everything is so plot centric. And if it doesn't figure into like the greater idea of the plot, then what's the point of it being there to, you know, to shape up the movie, to give it like to give it its joie de vivre. I mean, just little pieces like that, like the uh, the margins of Mad Magazine where they had the little drawings. That's what's like what makes filmmaking interesting story above plot. That's what I always say. If it's if this long soliloquy by this uh, character has nothing to do with the plot, but yet it makes the character more interesting, I'm down for it. It's just you have to be able to balance all these things, and James Gunn is like brilliant at that. Well, even looking at that scene, she's watching the Toxic Crusader, or maybe the Toxic Avenger. I don't know. She's Toxic watching, Avenger. She's watching a trauma film, and it's something that you. It's like when a movie has Night of the Living Dead playing in the background. You don't notice it at first, but it, it's all these layers of fandom pretty much and it's like the whole quentin tarantino syndrome i steal from every movie ever yeah everybody does that's the whole point of it it just doesn't have to be blatant you can have absolute love and just care about something to the extent that you can make pretty much an homage and that's exactly what james gunn did because everything in this movie is borrowed from something else all the kills all the shtick all the humor it comes from somewhere else, but the way he managed to mold this, and especially giving kudos to a very talented writer, was, you know, you gotta cut some shit out, you gotta cut some things down, and if you're gonna make a stab at something, you have to make it appropriate, like the R.J. McCready reference. It's pretty clever, and it's fun. The thing about it is when you're watching this, and you're a fan, even if you're not at the level of fandom that James Gunn is at, when you see these things... It's attracting because uh, you know it. You feel almost a sense of achievement. Like, oh my god, that's a reference to the thing. And this movie is is just... Uh, I should have written them down because it's laid out from uh, the beginning to the end with references. I mean, one of the family names when they are going and checking out people in the woods is named after one of the fucking families from uh, Rosemary's Baby. There's a lot. It's not just a, a little mild monster movie fandom that he really wrote a love letter to the horror community 
as well as shining and showing, uh, you know, his knowledge and his ability. And it's well written, well directed. It's gross. It makes you laugh. There's scenes that kind of just make you sad, like the white trash chick. You don't want that to happen to her. It's a very sad sequence. She was just trying to get laid because she wanted to fuck Michael Rooker since she was 11. Um, by far, though, the actor that steals the entire show from everyone else is probably Greg Henry as the mayor. He is amazing Henry in this film, man. I never show. knew who Greg Henry was before this movie, and then like going back through his career and noticing him now and seeing how much stuff he did over the years, seeing him in just before dawn, seeing where he's at now, um, still like working. And he is fucking hilarious in this movie. Just the way he delivers that whole, like Mr. Pib monologue about, <laughs> uh, what kind of Cokes you got? Oh, no, Mr. Pib. Where is the Mr. Pib? I told your secretary to pack Mr. Pibb. It's the only Coke I like. Goddamn Brenda's exploding like a water balloon. The worms driving my friends around like the goddamn skin cars. People are spitting acid at me. Turning into kind of cheese. And now there's no fucking goddamn Mr. Pibb. Jesus Christ, Jack. Let me get right on it. But this movie has, especially for the time period, like everything in it, um, it has a ton of practical effects. And I'm talking abusive practical effects. The Like Michael Rooker, the amount of shit they have on it must have hurt. And it must have crippled him throughout the shooting of this because they wanted to do very limited CGI. And yes, all the little worm creatures are CGI. All the large tentacles are CGI, but a good portion of it is not CGI. It's just straight up makeup. And it's, you know, I mean, like to actually spend the time, money and energy to do that, to make an old school like monster movie this way. I don't know how he schmoozed his way into getting the money to make this because it cost a fair. I think it costs like 15 million to make. And I think it grossed maybe six. So like. I guess James Gunn is that much of a charmer when you're when you're doing a pitch meeting. Well, if it says anything about this movie, this is something that when it came out was in an era that I was just growing into hardcore films and I was getting into, you know, things like August Underground and tracking down VH copy VHS copies of video nasty movies and I, I you know, uh, Last House on Dead End Street era. And I remember seeing this movie when it came out. It was one of those instant, I got to show every stoner I know, every Hesher, every dude that comes and drinks beer in my basement has to come watch this movie with me now. And I have made everyone I know sit down to watch Slither. And it's like, I'm not a huge Marvel fan, and it's not because I'm against it or don't care. I'm not interested in most comic book movies, especially the things that Marvel have to offer. Unfortunately, I kind of like Superman, so. Uh, And DC movies are just a mess. I've made a point to check out the Guardian of the Galaxy movies just because James Gunn is one hell of a writer. He's one hell of a director. And you look at the cast, you look at the people he pulls together for his movies. It's He's one of those directors that finds the talent and shuts up. And that's something that is, when we're getting to our next movie, something that helps make that perfect is when you can find the greatest talent that fits what you wrote. When you can, as a director, as somebody that has involvement, pick these people out and make these decisions you shut up and let him do it. And, I mean, you look at somebody like Michael Rooker, he's not just taking direction. A lot of his talent is how he, he can contort his face, how he shows emotion, well, not how only he that, speaks. like, as a writer, when you are the writer of the film and the director, he knows 
when to hire the person if they don't fit the role like specifically i know i want this motherfucker to play this part and what he doesn't fit in this i will rewrite it around him to make it fit him and that is what is like the real like choice of being a director or being a writer like that is being able to take it and like mold it around somebody because you know that you want them and you want it to be perfect for them. And that's what he did in Slither. Everybody fits their characters to a T. Everybody's perfectly cast. Well, if you don't have anything more to say about Slither, we can move into our next movie because I think it's also perfectly cast. And a lot of this will transition into that uh, quickly, just touching upon, we didn't do the brain. I don't know if I would give that four out of four, but Slither it's four out of four. It's, I'm not ever going to say it's a perfect movie. That's very rare for me. And it's weird criteria to make a perfect movie in my opinion, but I'd say it's about a four and a half. Oh, what Colt points are regular four and a half regs regs. I can agree to that. The brain, I would probably call it a two and a half to a three, probably more of a three. And um, Terror Vision, I would give it about a three. So Terror Vision for me is a four out of four, and I'm going to give Slither a four out of four. I'll, I'll agree with you on the brain, and it, it's not any point of not enjoying it. It's not that it's a, not a strong movie. It just doesn't hold up to something like Terror Vision or Slither. Or what we're but you're also into. comparing it to shit like that Godfather too, and the, like the brain up against the Godfather, you have to use a little bit of the same criteria. You can't just go, well, this was fun, so it's a five star movie. It's like, yeah, but like it had some fucking issues and this and this and this. Like you have to use your same criteria for every movie, to a certain extent, depending on what kind of movie it is. You do give certain allotances, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, would you say that the brain is as good as something like Goodfellas. Probably not. No. But I will stand and argue with you any day of the week that Terror Vision is as good as Goodfellas. <laughs> Goodfellas lacks Garrett Graham. It might have a brief few seconds of Vincent Gallo, but that doesn't do anything. Oh, for what do me. you think? I'm funny? Am I a clown to you? He really could have played the Pesci role. I, I think so. I mean, it, it, it. I don't know. I've never heard him say motherfucker. But it would have worked out. This next movie stars one of the greatest men ever created that's ever lived on this earth from 1986, Night of the Creeps, written and directed by the legendary Fred Decker. We've got... Mustache a... Rides, $500,000, Tom Atkins? The $500,000 a mustache ride, Tom Atkins. With a mustache. I always hate when I watch The Fog and I realize, like, oh, he's mustacheless in this one. It's just not as strong. His power level drops by, like, 30% with no mustache. But still, within 30 minutes, he's taking Jamie Lee to bed. So there's something about Tom Atkins. Women love him. He's like Reggie Bannister also in that same situation. Women just cannot resist Reggie Bannister or Tom Atkins. They must just ooze some sort of sex serum. we got to capture their scent, and it'll definitely help. Uh, guys get laid. I don't know. That joke didn't go anywhere. Fuck it. So, <laughs> Night of the Creeps. <laughs> This is, one of, creeps. this is definitely, I, I would say, one of my top ten favorite movies. I've loved this movie since high school. I don't remember the first time I saw it. It seems like it's always been in my life. And this, uh, Slither is a love letter to this. This is a true before that type. I mean, it's the same situation, the same thing we're talking about with James Gunn. This movie is absolute love of horror. And when it came out, Fred Decker, I mean, I think he was like 26 when he when he wrote and directed this. Some of the guys that he mentions, some of the homages and references in this movie are definitely guys that weren't 
you know, as we talk about now, you know, you've got Cronenberg references, Ramiro references, Toby Hooper references, and this is 1986. So Toby Hooper's doing things like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and Life Force. He really isn't in a godlike legendary status quite yet. So somebody like Fred Decker drawing attention and having the heart uh, with how this movie and the whole production and everything comes together is what makes it amazing. It really is Fred Decker's love of the genre and the heart he has as a director, because I think every different section of this movie is, I dare say, almost perfect. That you begin with a, a wonderful 1950s uh, segment way before Pleasantville with in black and white. Too, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a black and white thing, so it's way before Pleasantville. But you've got the all the screen titles are still in color. You know that this is going to transition into something else, and then it go you know go from an alien segment to a 1950s segment, and then just wonderfully it goes into 1986 sorority row, and all of these things mesh together. And again, I referenced this at the beginning of the show. You're instantly given this uh, allowance to laugh. Like at the beginning of the movie, you've got the goofy ass creatures that are running around these these little people in dickless suits with big butt cracks. And it's got this like really silly motivation to it and then turns into a horrific axe murdering monster slithering beast invasion sort of situation. And then again, pops into the 80s where it becomes fun and you almost forget all of these things you've been introduced to and where the horror is going to go from there. But you definitely know it's okay to laugh. Yeah, and um, but when it is good to laugh, and then it gets into some weird, serious situations at the same time, because like Tom Atkins' character is funny throughout the film, but it's not Tom Atkins like selling it at all. It's his character is deadly serious in this movie. It's, he's a suicidal cop for Christ's sake. He's been Thrill trying me. to kill himself um, throughout the entire film because he's so depressed. But he like mans up and becomes a goddamn action star by the end. You get a scene of his uh, his apartment, his house, and it's just pill bottles and booze everywhere. He's a raging alcoholic. He's miserable because the movie is introduced with him being dumped by his girlfriend way back in the 1950s. And a psychotic breaks from a mental institute, and they're going around and telling all the teenagers, you know, no fucking in the woods tonight. You got to get home. He runs across his girlfriend hanging out with another guy. And it breaks his heart, but lo and behold, the creeps land, the boyfriend gets infected, girl dies, and it haunts Tom Atkins for the rest of his life, and he's obsessed with this. And the character, his character itself, Detective Cameron, James, you know, that's a reference to James Cameron, almost all the names in this movie are really coy and fun references to either uh, influences and heroes of Fred Decker or, you know, horror legends that we all know and love. And it's, it's again, like Slither, one of those things that when you notice the reference, you get a little excited and you feel like, you know, you're a part of an end joke, which is something that's really unique when directors and writers are able to combine all these things and, and mix it together. But his obsession with this case is kind of unique in that what I think makes him the most interesting character, the Tom Atkins Detective Cameron oh, yeah. character. Because he's, he's never let it go. The second these incidents begin happening, he's trying to piece it together and find out how it's connected. And of course, lo and behold, it is, and it all leads together. But the funniest part is when all of the action starts taking off, Tom Atkins is trying to kill himself by letting all the gas in his house, and he's going to you know smoke a cigarette and blow it up. Which eventually, spoiler alert, is how he meets his demise at the end of the film. So it's been a mission the entire time. The movie has such a dark, sardonic nature with that, that the entire driving force is this guy's path to just fucking kill himself. He just wants to die. Well, like, for as kind of humorous as this movie is, 
um, as serious as it gets at times. Uh, probably like because it is like so comical throughout the the first portion of the mil- uh, the movie when Tom uh, Atkins starts telling the story of finding his girlfriend of the era being murdered. It becomes a deadly serious film and Tom Atkins just gives an amazing performance of delivering all this dialogue and uh, like probably the most telling thing in that scene is when um he's talking to is it is he's talking to JC isn't it is that his name I cannot remember fucking character names to I think of the life. scene you're talking about is Chris Romero um, played by Jason Lively where he says back outside of wanting to admit to a murder did you have anything else you wanted to talk about detective and then he just says like before all that, because like he's like you know like we're in a conversation here, and then he says something, and instead of Tom Atkins doesn't respond to him, he just says close because he didn't answer his question. He's obviously not paying attention to this other person in the room at all. He is firmly in this moment, reliving this moment again, and it is something that's haunted him for so many years. And you just have so much heart and feel for this character and all the trauma he's suffered over the years. And I think that's the most important thing about Night of the Creeps is the movie has a heart to it. It has the heart in the romantic relationship. There's a heart in the um, also somewhat romantic relationship of the two friends. And You know what else it has? This, mm. It's got an early appearance from Mr. Saturday Night himself, David Pamer. Oh, David Pamer's in it as well, yes. Um but at the end of the day, after all said and done, there's just so much heart and emotion in this incredibly ridiculous, uh, sometimes violent, sometimes exciting. Sometimes, but it's just all like down to heart and the amount of love that all these characters have for each other, for the most part. I mean, Tom Atkins has not much love for anyone at this point in his life. Well, sort of. He shows at the end of the day that he still is a stand-up guy, but it's interesting you reference the sort of homoerotic subtext between Chris Romero and J.C., which was, what was his name? Was it John Carpenter Romero? I don't remember. Uh, it, it was something clever, but it, that's something Fred Decker you know, doesn't feel is completely intentional. It's not sort of like Friday or Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. It, the thing about it in his words is there's a great discourse between the two characters where JC kind of tells Chris just, you know, I try, I love you. And I, it's why I do these things for you because I care about you. And that's what friends do. And his point behind writing that and adding that sequence is, is that he, he that's something that you kind of need in life and appreciate in life that you get to a certain point. It doesn't happen anymore. And for Fred Decker, it especially started happening around this period of his life because he made this film. Then immediately before this was even released, started going into Monster Squad and production on that. So his career was taking off. Shane Black was working on this set. All of these guys were about to become absolutely huge. And the big point of the the friendship was that reminder of having somebody to tell you you're wrong and you're fucking up, but I love you and that's why I'm letting you know. And it, it doesn't matter neither here nor there what you take into it because if you believe it's a homoerotic subtext, then you're viewing the art that way and take it that way. But for me, I always felt that it was just uh, Well, I think love, what I'm trying know? to say is it's, it's one of the very few exceptions of a friendship in a film, a very strong friendship with a lot of love, and a lot of like dialogue between the two characters and it doesn't at its core at at the end of all this you know this emotion between these two characters say no homo it breaks down those like the the like the kind of the toxic male relationship and like no you can't have friends you can't have friends that you love it doesn't and it's not no homo 
it's just like, no, it's not, there's nothing wrong with like just two people loving each other. Even if like, it was not like a sexual relationship or a friendship or anything. It's just love between two characters. You don't have to fucking like always equate that love with something else. You don't have to always like, it doesn't, this doesn't mean this and that doesn't mean that it's just, it's just love. That's all it is. Well, there's nothing effeminate about love, and I think that's something that's pointed out between these two characters, because I guess the one that you would refer to as the more effeminate character, Chris, he's completely able-bodied as to where JC is disabled, and there's no point around that. The movie's not about him being disabled. He just happens to be a disabled character. Why? Because people are disabled. He would be the more masculine character out of the two, and he is certainly the much more loving one and one more vocal about loving Chris and why he's tries so hard for him. And again, it's not a matter of effeminacy. It's just showing the relationship between these two people is very pure. And then when you get Ray Cameron introduced to it, especially with Chris, because unfortunately something bad happens to JC, their relationship becomes, you know, not, I wouldn't say a father and son bond, but they begin to take on the same roles that Chris and JC had. And, and Chris begins to become a little bit more masculine and realize, you know, thrill me. I got to do something about this. And again, the characters completely transition because Chris becomes JC and then Chris becomes Ray Cameron by the end of the movie. And all of them get these really individual kind of unique arcs. And even with JC, something bad happens to him, but it's because he goes out of his way to make sure something bad doesn't happen to Chris. So it all comes really back to love. And really, I mean, who becomes the two really most dominant, like, action style stars in this the female lead and the more effeminate male lead they're like they're they become the super badasses by the end of the film to where like they're like all bets are off in this when they're not going for general stereotypes unless you count the jocks but that's not a stereotype that's just true they're all like that they all have unibrows that are named chad it's just facts of life, baby. One of my favorite lines of dialogue is delivered once Jason Lively's character, Chris, Chris Ramiro, gets a little bit more pumped up and he has to kill the biggest douchebag of them all, the Chad of the, the story. And he hands Jill Whitlow, Cynthia, a shotgun and goes, I'll hold this, it'll make you feel better. But the way he delivered that line is there was no sarcasm, there was no humor behind it. It was completely earnest and it just drives him as a character. Just hold on to this, it'll make you feel better. And it's a police-issue 12-gauge shotgun while he's got a flamethrower strapped to his back. And Tom Atkins is going inside, nailing and shooting sorority girls in the head while delivering one-liners again one of everyone's favorite scenes of the movies there's good news and there's bad news your dates are here and they're dead i'm sorry i didn't know that it was here hold this you feel better i got good news and bad news girls the good news is your dates are here what's the bad news they're dead Um, and also this like is a prime example of a movie, not like shooting its wad off way too early because throughout most of the, I'd say the first three fourths of the movie, it's fairly reserved with its, like it's violent aspects until we get to kind of the, the end scene. And by all means, it's not 
boring, the stuff that shot before that. But when you get to the end and it becomes fucking mass carnage and it's just incredibly violent and like viscerally violent and hilariously violent, it it kind of uh, feels a lot like Dead Alive in that aspect where at the end it just becomes this free for all. Oh, yeah, you even got a lawnmower. Wholesale violence that really just like it's an explosion at the end and you're just kind of cheering. It's a really well-balanced movie for that. Like, again, we're focusing on story, not just advancing plot. It's a very important, like, differential you need to make in certain things because a lot of people just don't understand um, when I I say something like that. Like, plot is nonsense. M. M. Night Shyamalan movies are about plot. They're about getting to here, to here, to here, to here. And that, in some cases, does work, but mostly... Let's go all over the place, but ultimately we need to get to here because going all over the place makes it more enjoyable. You find out people, you find out who they are, you like learn to empathize with those people. It's not just a series of like like a treasure map getting to here to here to here to here. Like who gives a shit about that? Who cares about like having plot points every five fucking seconds. Give me story. And neither creeps is all about story. It has almost no fucking plot to, to speak of. It's all just story. Let's compare night of the creeps to some artistic stuff. You could dare say that this movie is similar to something like Yojimbo. Hardly. You have a very simple plot. Three people remember something differently. That's it. That's what you, that's the whole fucking movie. Three people remember something differently. Doesn't sound amazing, right? But it's billed and known as one of the greatest and most prolific movies of all time. Akira Kurosawa, written and directed, uh, Toshiro Mifune, the legendary Japanese actor. It's it's astounding. It, it's a great shot film, blah, 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 blah. There's all sorts of shit that you can go check out by Roger Ebert about that fucking movie. But the point is, that's the plot. That's all you have to say. So when you're talking about Night of the Creeps, what is it about? Aliens come to Earth, and they screw some stuff up. That's it. That's how you could describe this movie very simply to somebody. But so much more happens inside of it. You have loss, friendship, growth, uh, characters changing, and gr- uh, just it's a whole realm of different emotions and something that you had talked about earlier, how there just aren't movies that are made like this anymore. And it's, it's really because of, of the lack of depth and the weird amount of social media or lack of interactions that people have anymore, that you sit and live your entire life and come up with this persona on the internet, you don't know even how to act, uh, how to be around people anymore, and that's what translates onto film. A bunch of soulless characters you don't care about because of what? Well, every movie that you watch now has to have some lead-in of, of Facebook profiles or checking out some of their phone. It's it's just a device that has almost made things impossible that you have to write around. You know, I mean, let's look at, like, a good home invasion movie. Oh, they have an iPhone that has a tracker on it. All they have to do is call the police or whatever. You know, everything can be ruined easily by technology, and it's like guys like Stanley Kubrick made a point to either make a movie that took place in the past or was kind of timeless, that it didn't have a definitive date to it because that kind of fucks things up. And when you have Night of the Creeps and you go from the 50s to the 80s, yeah, that kind of happens. But at the same time, there's a timeless nature to the actual realism and the the hardiness of the characters. You can believe in them. Well, I mean, if you compare it to even something like modern horror, like Night of the Creeps, the plot of it is aliens come to Earth and some college kids have to stop them. But it's so much more than that. Compared to, like, that, was that, Unfriended movie? I might have the title wrong because there's been so many movies with, like, internet-savvy fucking titles. But 
that movie is all about figuring out what is going on. That's the entire point of the movie. Everything's a goddamn detective story now, and I don't need a detective story. I don't it it's not I don't need to be shocked at the end of like, oh, this is what was going on the entire time. How about telling me what's going on and letting just enjoy the ride occasionally? It doesn't work in all cases, but that's what makes uh, why people are so obsessed with things like 80s horror movies because very little has to do with fucking plot devices and where we're going and what's happening. We knew what was happening before we even got into the theater with most Friday the 13th movies. It's about getting to the end that's like fucking amazing because the plot in itself is dog shit. Who cares? But getting there is what's crazy. And so many movies today are just not, it's all about getting to the end. And I'm like, I don't, I want to enjoy what I'm watching. I don't care about like being shocked. I don't care about being surprised. You don't have to surprise me with everything. Just give me some people I care about. Okay, if they made a remake now of Night of the Creeps, you know what scene would definitely be in it? A scene where a character sits down in front of a goddamn computer and starts Googling shit to figure out what's going on. If I have to see a scene like that in a horror film again, I'm going to snap my shit. Because that's what I'm sick of. It's just like, okay, this is how we're going to... Here's your story. Here's your plot. I'm just going to use the cheapest, lamest like device to... Here, here's information... You just looked it up. Well, I mean, this is kind of touching upon something I brought up earlier, too. It wouldn't even be a computer. It would be forcing the use of a phone or whatever modern piece of technology everybody knows about right now. Like, we've discussed Neon Demon a lot before, but one of the things that's intriguing about it is it seems to take place in our time period, and the only display of a phone you get, even when that movie came out, was very archaic by that standard. Being, like, and I was talking about Kubrick with this sort of thing, being able to remove time allows the movie to almost be forever because you can continue believing in that. And Night of the Creeps definitely has an arch with 1986. But it's almost a comfortable 1986 because it's to the point that it's poppy enough and trends have reset and people have acknowledged things and fashion has come to different circumstances that it looks like what you imagine the 80s to be. It's very arch of what the 1980s were. You've got big hairspray, one gratuitous titty scene, 80s music, synth music, Miller fucking high life everywhere. I think he got a few low and brows and Miller light. But still, it's enough that... Yeah, it's definitely the 80s. Look, they got Hawaiian shirts on. It's the 80s. So anybody can kind of transition into this. But when you, you know, this movie specifically set in whatever and everyone's sitting on iPhones or droids or, or whatever technology is popular using Google, Skype, webcams, four or five years from now, it becomes completely lost because it's like, what the hell was that? What, what is this? And, you know, this ha- it happens constantly. When, like CGI, things look absolutely amazing like <clears throat> Lord of the Rings when they came out. And now it's kind of pitter-patter. It's not impressive, but... Yeah, but it was 20 years ago. So it's a moot point I'm making here, but still, I'm... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, you got lost in your thing. What I think what you're basically saying is it helps to be timeless, and when you devote so much time to modern efficiencies on that, you're not focusing on shit like story and a lot of other stuff. You like It kind of takes you out of what the story is and what the story ultimately is, is about people. And if your story is not about people, then it's just about nothing. And nothing is not interesting. It needs to be about something. It needs to be about growth. It needs to be about interpersonal interaction, not just some douchebag wants to fuck me. And I just like, I keep blocking him on Twitter. It's like, that's not that compelling. Well, there even, uh, I'll use an example that I guess just 
Turkey Hank's Legion 10 Jerky. The self-sustaining treat for you and me to eat. Ranch, bacon, jalapeno, iguana. We got all the exotic flavors. Cranch, that's ketchup and ranch. Unky Hank's Lizard Ted Jerky. Find out how you can start a new career in the Lizard Ted Jerky business. Call 1-877-772-7337 and have a hundred American dollars ready. After 10 easy cash payments, we'll teach you how to start your new life in the Lizard Ted Jerky business. It's lizard liquor good. Ain't no lizards even harmed. Just listen to them. Some happy lizards. The secret here at Unky Hank's Lizard Tail Jerky is that we feed the lizards their own tails. That's right, it's self sustaining. Lizards eat lizard tail, just makes it even tastier for you. No lizards were harmed in the forming of this, definitely not well. Okay, maybe possibly a little pyramid scheme. Actually, it's more of a diamond. You see, not so much a pyramid, you start to pop and a whole. I'll buy a t shirt. Screaming like banshees. I got nothing. <laughs> All right. I think that probably ought to do it up for this week. What do you say? I think the ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. See you guys next week. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Screaming like banshees. <laughs> that is.